I invite you to open, open God's Word to Luke chapter 12 this morning. Luke chapter 12 as we continue marching through the Gospel of Luke. This morning we come to verses 49 to 59 of chapter 12. As we uh, read this morning from God's Word, I'd like to ask you to stand, uh, at least those of you that are here at home, do whatever you want to do, uh, stand as we read God's Word together. So Luke 12, 49 to 59. Let us hear what Luke is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourself what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning we thank you for your word. We know that your word is living and active. So Father, we pray for your spirit that you would accompany your word this morning to bring about life, hope, change, correction, exhortation, encouragement into our lives. Father, we pray that your word would give life to those who are dead. Father, that if there is one not believing and trusting in Jesus for the salvation and forgiveness of their sins, we pray, Father, that they would look to you in faith as we hear from your word. Father, we thank you for speaking to us. Strengthen us this day, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, uh, we come to these verses in Luke's gospel that record for us in Jesus' own words why he came to this earth. Uh, If we hadn't already read this text, then you had to guess what Jesus would say about why he came, I doubt any of us would have anticipated how he speaks 
about his coming and what he says about his coming here in these verses. In verse number 49, as we see, there's, there's no connecting word at the beginning of this verse that ties this section into what has been said before it, but Jesus is continuing a theme, a theme that he has been speaking on. It's the theme of judgment and the theme of division. The faithful servant was to be about the master's work because one day the master was going to return and judgment would happen. The wise manager was to be obedient to his master's wishes because at some point that master was going to return, which means there was going to be judgment. And that's what the master would bring. He would bring judgment, reward for those who are found faithful and punishment for those who were disobedient. It's at this point that Jesus begins to speak about his own ministry, about what he came to do, about the judgment that he was already bringing at that time into the world through his ministry, through the things that he has been doing, teaching, healings, all these things. And Jesus asks questions in these verses, direct questions. In each of these kind of three section, Jesus is asking a very pointed question. And through the power of God's word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, they are questions that are posed to each of us this morning posed directly to you, posed directly to me, questions that, quite frankly, we have to answer, we have to consider. So Jesus speaks about his coming, he speaks about why he came, he's going to teach us about the division that his coming brings about. And so we see that, we're going to see that first off in verse 49 through 53 there. And after that, so he's going to teach about division that his coming brings, and then in verse 54 and following, he's going to give us two illustrations that call for us to make a response, to repent and to believe in him for salvation. So he's gonna describe for us his ministry, the division that that brings, and then two kind of illustrations to push on questions for us of how are you going to receive the ministry of Jesus? How are you going to receive the reason why he came to this earth. So let's start uh, with, with the first point here. Jesus' coming brings division. Jesus' coming brings division. This is verse 49 to 53. Uh, in these verses, obviously some very strong, some very direct things that Jesus says, right? We see the word I a lot in these verses. Uh, Jesus says, I came to, I have a, I have come to, I tell you. These are all things Jesus is saying about himself and his ministry, uh, why he came to this earth, why his coming to this earth, what that means for us, what he's bringing about by his appearance. So we can break these uh, down into two points in this section. First is just that Jesus describes his ministry. Jesus describes his ministry, verse 49 and 50. Uh, again, describing why he came. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth. Uh, somewhat odd language. Of course, Jesus is using metaphorical language here. Uh, and his statement is parallel also with what he says uh, with verse 50, where he uses another image to describe why he came. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. These are two kind of parallel thoughts and statements, biblical images here. So fire represents persecutions 
afflictions, dissensions, and strife that accompany the gospel. Those things that come with the gospel. So fire is a judgment of sorts that will divide people. It will bring trouble upon people for believing and following after Jesus. The baptism here that Jesus speaks about being baptized with, of course, is not referring to water baptism, but to the baptism of judgment. Namely, we could kind of condense it and say the judgment of the cross, of his coming suffering that he was coming to perform. Baptism is the waters of judgment that Jesus must be immersed in. The way of the cross was one of suffering and judgment. Of course, as the Bible makes very clear, it was not suffering and judgment for Jesus' sins, but for our judgment, for our sins, that he came and was placed upon him. You remember when James and John came to Jesus and they're asking, talking about the kingdom, and they're wanting to sit uh, on his right hand, one on his right, one on his left. You know, they came to him, and there was that whole debacle, and the disciples are all uh, getting up in arms because they're seeking this power uh, to come into the kingdom. And Jesus responded to James and John uh, in Mark 10, 38. He says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And so what we see there, this same sort of metaphorical type language that the cup and baptism are for Jesus' suffering, for his ultimate death on the cross. So what Jesus is doing here is he's clearly saying, I have come to suffer. I have come to die. He came as the pure, spotless lamb of God to suffer, to be immersed in judgment, to cast fire and affliction on the earth that are a result of his salvation. This is Jesus speaking about his ministry of why he came to walk on this earth. And notice, mixed in with this is Jesus' longing and desire to bring all these things about. Verse 49 states, and would that it were already kindled. And of that baptism and cross, he says, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. You see, what this is teaching us here is Jesus was laser focused on his ministry and on the cross. Luke used this as a marker in his book back in chapter 9, verse 51 and 53, where he states that Jesus, quote, set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's all after that point that we see in, in the gospel of Luke of Jesus leading in his ministry to Jerusalem. What was it, Jerusalem? He was going to the cross. He was going to suffer, laser focus. This was Jesus's ministry. This is why Jesus came. The reality of coming trouble, suffering, humiliation, just think about that, did not deter our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus was ready. He was willing to endure the suffering of the cross for us and to the glory of God. We oftentimes, I think it's easy because obviously we are focusing on the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and what he did there. Consider though, in his ministry, the years leading up to that, the open public ministry of Jesus knowing 
Here is what he came to do. He came to suffer. And suffer, suffering is what lied in front of him. Real hard suffering. In fact, suffering that is worse than any sort of physical type of torture. We're talking about the suffering of having God turn his back upon him, pour out his judgment upon him for the sins of the church to be laid on Jesus and for he to be cursed of God. And Jesus looked at that and knew about that coming and what was his response he said how great is my distress until that is accomplished i came for that purpose jesus was willing and ready to endure our suffering he says how great is my distress until that is accomplished we could translate this how constrained i am till it is fulfilled. It's that fulfillment language of Jesus coming to fulfill the ministry that God had given to him that he was doing and he was constrained by it. We can define constrained like this, to exercise continuous control over someone. Right, so the control over Jesus, that continual control was to come and suffer on the cross. Our Savior Jesus, he willingly, willingly, zealously, fervently went to the cross to die for us. Brothers and sisters, we need to let that truth sink in this morning. Jesus knows us by name and Jesus was in distress in his ministry to go to the cross and to die for you. How amazing is that truth just to pause and to consider that Jesus was constrained to die for us, to glorify the Father in obedience of dying on the cross. How amazing, how wonderful is our Savior's love for us through what he has done for us. Jesus was zealous. That coming obedience controlled him. And that really controlled his ministry. As we see his ministry, when people came to try to make him king, what was his response? No, no, that's not, that's not why I have came. That's not what this looks like here. You're not interpreting that correctly. When he's healing people, showing his love and compassion, don't tell anybody don't tell anybody about this because my, my mission is, is that's going to divert. I'm coming to the cross. I'm coming to die. All of this in Jesus' ministry, he was controlled by going to the cross. Even as followers of Jesus Christ. So I think kind of the first whack with which that hits us is just to be amazed and encouraged of Jesus' love to save us, to rescue us of what he endured and for us to be impacted by that because what's our response going to be as we realize, again, just afresh the truth of Jesus Christ? Is it gonna be, ah, well, I don't wanna live in obedience to him. Uh, I just wanna kinda skirt along and get by the best I can and have as much fun doing what I wanna do and not really worry about Jesus' word and have that impact me. No, that's not the response. Our response is our Savior loved us, he redeemed us, and he's given us instructions of how to live in obedience to him. 
In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the same word the Apostle Paul uses to say about how his life was uh, constrained, uh, how, how great his distress was, so to speak. 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us. So it's interpreted there, controls us. The love of Christ controls us. It constrains us. He says, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. So the apostle Paul is saying, it's the love of God that controls my life. Why it is I do what I do, I'm constrained, I'm controlled by Jesus. And if Jesus had a fervent passion to live in obedience to the Lord, his followers likewise are to have a fervent passion to live in obedience to the Savior who redeemed us. And so our life is to be given over with zeal, with a constraint to live in obedience to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So first off, Jesus, he describes his ministry here. And we can say next in verse 51 to 53, he kind of clarifies his ministry. So he kind of clarifies here to say, now, now hold tight. Here's what this is going to look like in real life. Uh, so what was it that the coming of Jesus brought about? Well, here's kind of that answer that might surprise you a little bit. He says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? You think that? He's, he's asking here to the disciples and I'm sure the crowds. No, I tell you, but rather division. I came to bring division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. And then he goes on with all the familiar uh, family divisions that are there. Now he's not speaking, we're gonna see, about just the problems you might or might not have with your mother-in-law. He's talking here about divisions that come as opposed to the cross and believing in him. But we pause for just a minute and think, well, doesn't the Bible teach us that Jesus came to bring peace on earth? Doesn't the Bible teach us earlier in this book, chapter two, verse 14, the shepherds heard the angels singing at the birth of Jesus. Uh, they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. All throughout this book, Jesus has been saying to people he healed, go in peace. John 14, 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Many other examples of this type of language. What Jesus is teaching us is that his ministry, his gospel will divide people. Some will accept the gospel and some will reject it. And Jesus is showing that reality, teaching that reality. As we know, Jesus had a first coming and he will have a second coming. The disciples didn't see that clearly before Jesus' death and his ascension. They, they basically saw his first coming and second coming as being the same event. They were hoping that he would set up his kingdom, that he would rule and reign on this earth in a physical, eschatological way during their time at that place right then and there. And they were anticipating that. They were anticipating the peace that the coming Messiah was going to bring. But Jesus is here teaching them and clarifying to them what things would look like before his second coming. His death on the cross would not bring about peace in the world. 
In fact, as he says, it will bring division. Jesus brings about peace between God and man. But Jesus' coming did not bring peace and harmony to this world. Jesus gives the example of division in the home in 52 to 53. He's quoting here from Micah 7, 6 in verse number 53, where we see those who are being, being obedient to God's instruction are divided against those who are opposed to God, even within the same house. Jesus is teaching here about the costly nature of discipleship. That those who are in the faith are true believers and sisters and that enmity described here in verse 53 is between those who accept Christ and those who reject Christ. Just think about it and the truth of this, kind of like a a literal application of this, uh, very clear application of this in, in the world today, various parts of the world. Some are literally denounced from a family for receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. For receiving Jesus and being baptized, literally some are kicked out of a family. They are denounced, they are removed. It is though they have died, they are disowned. Even in our nation, some who turn to faith bring disunity into a family that is not a believing family, a Christian family. Unbelieving parents might not be happy with children taking faith in Christ seriously. Adult children's maybe making decisions based upon how God would have them live and what God would have them value. And those values are against the worldly way of living and so there's conflict. There's conflict there. Maybe not pursuing a career path because God has given you conviction to go another way and maybe parents have thought, no, this is exactly what you need to do and the Lord is, is opening another path to you and you share that with unbelieving parents, they might be upset. Maybe your faith just irks others in the family. They don't understand it. They don't agree with it. They don't like it when you share the good news with them or try to get all quote unquote religious to talk about Jesus. Maybe adult unbelieving children being upset with their parents who now all of a sudden have found some sort of religion and believing in Christ. And the examples can go on and on. You can imagine just all the examples and maybe in your own family, this is a close reality. These types of things should not surprise us. Jesus didn't come to make the world get along. He came to save sinners who would turn and trust in him. We need to realize this not only in the family, but also in society. We need to realize this nationally. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on Luke, wrote this in 1858. He said this about this verse. How useless it is to expect universal peace and harmony from the preaching of the gospel. How useless. How useless to expect peace and harmony from the preaching of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, let us beware of unscriptural expectations in this life, especially especially as they relate to society at large and the way that unbelievers act. Listen, of course, unbelievers are going to balk at the things of God. Of course, unbelievers are going to try to turn biblical truth on its head to reject it and to go the complete opposite way of what God's word says. 
Just think about how society is revolting against the truth of gender that God's word teaches. Being male and female in different roles that God has given to each. Those who reject God reject the teachings of God's word. And it does not bring about peace and unity in this world. The point is not don't try and defend what is right and good. Of course, we do that. The point is don't expect there to be peace on this earth. Like the disciples, we need to be reminded we will not ultimately find peace in this life. The peace we so long for on this earth will be found in the life to come when Jesus returns again and sets up his rule and reign on this earth forever, then peace will be brought to this earth. So Christians, don't be naive in this world. Listen, God's word says it. You will have trouble. You will have trouble because of your faith in Jesus. Let us not be distraught. Let us not be put out of sorts and let us not just be generally grumpy people when we see a world that seeks to throw off all biblical thought, Jesus warns us of that here. He clarifies his mission for us. His coming will bring division. Jesus, Jesus didn't say it might here. He said it will. It will bring division. And listen, we need to be at peace with that. This is exactly what Jesus has told us. It's right after this teaching that Jesus turns to the crowds or at least speaks directly to the crowds. I, I have no idea. Even Peter, right? He's asking there in verse number 41, uh, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all of us? So I don't know the scene, like if it was just Jesus with the disciples or probably I think it was Jesus with the disciples with a whole bunch of other people. And sometimes Jesus is focusing in on the disciples, but everybody's hearing it. That's my best guess. But here he turns and verse 54 and he also says to the crowds here. So he's turning his attention kind of away, at least he's drawing our attention away from the disciples. I think we could say here away from maybe the disciples who are following him to maybe those that had not made a conscious choice to follow after him. Or maybe they were on the, 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 the edge of following after him. Maybe they were there because of his healings, of his teachings, and they were intrigued by this Jesus. And so Jesus turns his attention to them and the next thing we see here are these two examples so jesus is coming demands a response he is asking for a response here in verse 54 to 59. so what jesus says here again basically given to the crowds it's these illustrations first off we can say of the first illustration verse 54 to 56 it's a call to interpret the times a call to interpret the times and jesus gets into some meteorology for us here in these verses he says, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. When you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? The weather prowess that Jesus speaks about here was probably a very common fact. He's not speaking about a low front 
coming into the mid-Atlantic region that could very well go out to sea or up the coast and who knows with the cold front of if it's going to rain, if it's going to snow or what's going to happen. That's not, that's not what Jesus is talking about here, right? We know that uh, even from today, right? Watching the weather, who knows what's going to be happening. He's talking here about a very common event, a common thing in that day. The Mediterranean Sea was due west of Palestine and would clouds would come, moisture would be drawn up off of the sea and it would immediately come onto the land. And when you knew that was happening, it's going to, as it rises up in elevation, going up to Jerusalem, the rain is going to drop out of the clouds that comes up. And he says, this is a known fact uh, to everybody. And when the winds turn to come out of the south, due south, south, east, they're coming there from the desert. And so obviously, doesn't take a very smart person to know there's warm air uh, in the desert, it also gets cold there too, but there's a lot of warm air and up it comes and you know it's going to be scorching heat. It's going to be very hot. And now Jesus isn't here uh, saying there's uh, uh, something wrong with meteorologists or wrong with studying weather or knowing all of these things. He's calling people hypocrites because they see that. They see that, that they can interpret here this weather and the time but here stands the Savior of the world, the promised one from the Old Testament that has come, and they're oblivious to it. Standing right in front of them, the Savior, the promised one, the Lamb of God, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the Messiah, the anointed one. Here he is in his ministry. They see the works that Jesus is doing and has done, yet they don't interpret or make the proper judgment. What was it that Jesus was doing that should have been realized or understood. Much like, well, kind of what was the wind? If the wind, uh, uh, the, the, the clouds coming off the Mediterranean Sea, what was it that they have seen about Jesus that they should have gotten, that they should have known? Well, for starters, uh, the blind are receiving their sight, the lame have walked, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. That's basically what Jesus said to John the Baptist when he says, hey, I'm in jail, are you it or should we wait for somebody else? And that's what he said to him, look at these signs. Look at these signs because these signs point to me to say I'm it. The demon possessed are healed, thousands are miraculously fed in the wilderness, storms are calmed, truth is taught. Could go on and on, all the things we see taking place in the gospels, those are just some of the signs that should have been interpreted but they refused to see them for what they were. They're unwilling to receive them and so Jesus calls them out in this verse. And what he's doing there is he's teaching us about who he is, the savior he is and what he's come to do and he's affirming for us, this is what I've come to do in my ministry. I have come to bring about salvation and you are missing it. And so he's calling these people hypocrites we don't know the response of the crowd that day. Maybe the Spirit of God and some people there were just awakened. They heard Jesus saying this and maybe the Holy Spirit just started cutting on the lights in their life to where they saw this is the Savior that has come. Maybe, maybe that happened in the crowd. We, we don't know. It's not recorded for us, but Jesus is here teaching us and he's somewhat calling for a response for them here. The second 
example is an admonition to reconcile with God. So interpret the times rightly and reconcile with God. He immediately asks another probing question, verse 57. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Jesus asks. So same question you can interpret. You know the weather. And you can, you can see that in, in the changing of the seasons and what that brings about. You don't even know the time of what I'm doing. And next he says, why do you not judge for yourself what is right? So the answer there, of course, is that you're judging wrongly by not believing in me. Why don't you judge what is right? He's calling on them to have personal reflection here. And, he, and he's kind of calling on them to reason. Think, think about this. Think through this situation that I'm going to give you. Consider this truth in your life and see if it's not accurate what I'm saying. So he gives an il illustration of a legal, civil dispute in these verses. He says, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you'll never get out until you've paid every last penny. The words that are used here for accuser, magistrate, officer, and judge reveal that this is a civil financial type of dispute. I think that would have been very clear to the hearers that Jesus is speaking to. The picture is of someone who owes someone else money. They're guilty for whatever reason, and they owe money to somebody. And the two are on their way to the magistrate. And the advice is to settle the accounts with a person you have wronged before they are handed over to the magistrate and the magistrate then hands you over to the judge and the judge is going to put you in front of the jailer who's going to put you in jail and throw the keys away. Assumed in this illustration is that if you go into quote-unquote debtor's prison, you will never get out. As Jesus teaches there, the you will never is the strongest negation in the Greek language. It's a double negative that adds emphasis. He says, look, you're not getting out of this place. You will never, never get out. Every last penny is actually, you probably see it there in your footnotes, if you have that in your Bible, is a lepton in ancient society, which was the smallest coin worth something like 1 28th of a day's wages. I don't know, somebody else figured that out. Don't worry, I didn't. Roughly 25 minutes worth of work. So the point is, look, if you go there, you will never get out if you're cast into this place. The illustration is a picture of the debt we owe to God. And we must settle our accounts with God before it is too late. The prison here represents hell. A place that if you go, you will never, never get out. You will never get out of that place because you will never fully pay for your sins. Think about that for a minute. Hell is eternal because those who go there will never fully pay for their sins. That is why Jesus' words on the cross are so beautiful when he said, it is finished. His payment was made in full, complete. That's it. This picture here of those who go will never fully pay. They will never get out. This is a call for us to reason and consider. 
It's a call for us to reason and consider here in your life. Look, there's an assumed debt. There's a debt between God. And here in this example, there's a debt with an accuser and you owe them money that you can't pay and you wrongly did it and they're taking you to the judge, the magistrate, the judge, and all these people, right? You're on your way there and he says, look, isn't it the smart thing to do to settle with this guy so you don't end up in prison? That's what you need to do. You need to settle with him before, so you don't go to prison. That would be a silly thing to do. And in this example, maybe in our minds, isn't as clear. It would have been a very clear example in the mind of these uh, New Testament people of these types of things that happen to get put into a debtor's prison. And so the point is settle with God. That is why I came, Jesus is saying. Saying, isn't this the right thing to do, to trust and believe in me so that you will be saved? As we think about even the time and interpreting the time correctly, what is the time that we are currently living in? If we think about the time of uh, this, uh, uh, weather patterns that we see, et cetera, that Jesus calls forth, what's the time that we are living in and, and things that we should note to believe in Jesus Christ. I think 2 Corinthians 6 verse 1 answers uh, this question quite directly and clearly. Paul says, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is Paul speaking post-cross, post-resurrection to the believers there in Corinth. And he says, look, now's the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. That is the time that we are living in. Much like Adam said last week, there's this day, speaking about Martin Luther's calendar, this day and that day, right? That's the same kind of concept here. There's this day. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the favorable time. There is a time coming when it will not be the day for salvation. And that is the day of death. That's the day when we die. We don't know when that day is coming. It could happen anytime, any moment. And the point that he's saying here is now is the time of salvation. Now is the time to be forgiven of your sins. Now is the time for the preaching of the gospel to go forth. Will you receive forgiveness of sins? God's word so clearly speaks about of our debt, our guilt that we have before him, our being condemned, our conscious conscience that, that tells us that we've sinned, will we take that to the cross of Jesus Christ and seek forgiveness? Now is the day to come to him. If you're not trusting, if you're not believing in Jesus Christ, that is our invitation to you this morning. That is the confession of all of our members here at Redeeming Grace is that we owed a debt we could not pay to God and praise God he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for my debt, for my sin so that I can be forgiven, so that I can be free. He has redeemed us, he's saved us and now he's working on us. That's our confession and we invite you to receive the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.
to accept the promise that God says, I will save you. I will save you. Trust in Jesus Christ and you will be forgiven of your sins. We hold that message out today. And brothers and sisters, I assume most of us here believing in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, it's a snowy day and you're here at church, right? Uh, so we're, we're, we're coming out, we're believing in him. What's our response to that? Well, A, keep believing. Keep believing, keep following after Jesus Christ, keep holding on to the gospel. And I think directly after that is, look, now's the time for us to get the gospel out. Now's the time for us to be sharing the gospel. In fact, that's a task God has given to us as his church. He's given it to all of us. How can we be faithful to share the gospel with others, to tell others about Jesus Christ? That's the task that we have been given. Brothers and sisters, let us be faithful to do it. Pandemic, no pandemic. Let us be faithful to the task to tell others about Jesus Christ because now is the day of salvation. There is a real place called hell that is coming for every single one of us. Give it just 100 years, we'll all be somewhere. Are you trusting in Christ? Let us persevere, let us tell others and get the gospel message out. Jesus' coming to this earth brings about division. Jesus didn't want his disciples to uh, just fall off because of all the division and persecution that was coming. Just think about in their lives, post-resurrection, uh, post kind of the writing of the New Testament of how their lives went as they went literally all across the globe in kind of different directions taking the gospel. Most of them, most all of them were martyred for their faith. That is, they, they were killed because they believed in Jesus and they were sharing the gospel of Jesus and they got in trouble because of it. And they needed to know, hey, look, this whole gospel thing, this message, that's what the world is like right now before Jesus comes back. There's division. There's division. There's gonna be a lack of, of peace, but listen, that is what happens when people reject the Savior. Let us not be distraught unbiblically by that. Let us realize that fact and live in obedience to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and show the unity in the church that's supposed to be shown amongst one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, to display that coming unity to be seen in the church. It's a picture, right, of that coming glorious kingdom when Christ returns, let us be faithful. Let us respond properly. Jesus is coming, it demands a response. Receive the Savior, continue to persevere and hold on to the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that now is the time of salvation. Brothers and sisters, let us be about sharing that message with others as Jesus brings them into our life. Let's go together in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word that instructs us, that teaches us in the way of salvation and in the way of truth. Father, would you help us to be constrained by your word, to seek to live in obedience to our zealous Savior who came to die on the cross for our sins. Father, would you continue to have mercy on us, we pray. Father, we thank you just again for your word and the clarity of your word. And we thank you for our amazing Savior, 
Jesus Christ. We confess together, Lord, that you have paid for all of our sins and that we owe you all that we have. It's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen.